signups happen through Church Center, which is a free app that you can download onto your phone. If you haven't already done that, you can also access it through the computer from our website. Um, but Church Center, so if you have not already taken advantage of getting signed up on that, please go ahead and do that. And if you have any trouble, um, come and let me know, and I will be happy to help. We're, we're just wondering who you are. What was your name? <laughs> I was uh just start the just start the first song, just go ahead. Debating on whether to <laughs> throw my wife under the bus. Aww. Sweet, sweet wife under the bus. <laughs> my name's Chris. I've been here for a while. <laughs> yes. I did shave and then and then Jenny said, Wow, you look like Blaine. <clears throat> my oldest son. Let's stand together and we're going we're gonna to begin worship together.
You're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. 
Father, we thank you for this morning, for this time that we can come together and look to you through our worship, through our learning, through how we celebrate the grace that we find in our life because of you. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you're one of our guests and have a kid in that, that range, you can take them and get them checked in and then come back and join us. One of the observances that uh, we practice as a church family is to uh, formally ordain or lay hands on our elders and deacons, and we also do it with new staff as well. So I'm going to invite Mike and Jennifer Young up. Uh, Mike is uh, our newest elder, and uh, as you know, he came on board uh, this summer, and uh, so we have a, a small ordination ceremony that uh, we like to do, and we want to involve you with, and it's a, a way to uh, formally uh, recognize and pray for and charge uh, those who are serving as uh, elder, and that is uh, Mike, and this is his wife Jennifer, and, and I'm joined by Dick Norman and Brad Hayes, uh, our elder, other elders at this point. Uh, so Mike and Jennifer are here. I'm going to go ahead and read. First uh, Timothy 3, 1 to 7, which uh, lays out the qualifications uh, for an elder, it says it is a trustworthy statement. This is Paul writing to the young pastor, Timothy. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Mike, we've submitted your name to the congregation for consideration as an elder uh, in accordance with our constitution. And based on their comments, the congregation agrees with your selection uh, to join us on the elder board and approves of you to serve as one of our elders. You've indicated a desire to serve as an elder and you've demonstrated your ability to handle the word of God. Your moral character and reputation are above reproach. You are hospitable. You have your home life in order and the husband of one wife. We commend you to serve as an elder at Conroe Bible. Now I have a couple of questions here. Uh, and so we would ask you to, if you agree to answer, I will. Mike, will you uphold the standards of the Office of Elder of Conroe Bible Church? Mike, will you faithfully carry out the duties and responsibilities of this position? Will you look to the Lord to provide strength and wisdom to fulfill these responsibilities? 
Jennifer, you get a question too. Jennifer, although you are not being ordained, you are most important to your husband. Will you support, encourage, and pray for your husband as he serves as elder? Mike, I want to remind you of the high calling of this office. Because of this high calling, I charge you as follows. First and foremost, may your life, your thoughts, and your actions be devoted to Jesus Christ. May he shine forth as the Lord of your life. May you look to him in troubled times, knowing that he finished the race well. Secondly, may you assume this office not in a prideful or haughty way, but as a servant. May you serve wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. Our prayers are with you, Mike and Jennifer. And we are glad to welcome you uh, officially and formally uh, on the elder board. And we will continue to pray for you. We are thankful that you are praying with us as well. And um, one of the ways that uh, scripture uses laying on of hands is for the appointment of special service. So we're going to ask you to kneel and we will lay on hands and pray over you. And I'm going to ask the congregation to uh, stand and to pray with us. If you would pray for uh, Mike and his service to our church family as I pray out loud. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for Mike. We, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who handcrafted him in the, the womb, you made him in your image, and you have prepared him for good works, which you have called him to. And we thank you that uh, one of those is as a servant leader here at uh, Conroe Bible Church to wholeheartedly give himself to our church family, uh, to care for the spiritual welfare, uh, both individually and corporately. We thank you for the leadership that uh, you have given him uh, the servant leadership uh, that he and Jennifer have exhibited uh, over the years with Parmley and the relationship that we've been able to build there. Thank you for their involvement in various uh, Bible studies and small group. And we thank you for the privilege of uh, having someone that you have prepared for this. And we ask that uh, you would keep him pure. We ask that you would fan the flames of his passion for Jesus and that he would be willing to make hard choices uh, to follow you with a, uh, a long obedience in the same direction toward Jesus. We ask that you would use him to serve our body and that you would uh, allow us to become more like Jesus because of his service here. And we give you thanks, Lord, that this is your design uh, for our body and for your local church. And so we choose to follow you. And we entrust ourselves to you, along with Mike, as a church family, to become more like Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you all. You can be seated. Jesus wants to disrupt your life. 
Jesus wants to disrupt your life. Now, when I say that, you know that he has disrupted your life, right? I mean, he's the one that uh, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and this message today from God's word is oriented toward those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have received the free gift of salvation by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior, believing that he died on the cross in their place for their sin and rose again from the dead. So if that is something that you have done, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Christ, then he has disrupted your life. He, he, he made you spiritually alive when you were spiritually dead. And he moved you from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, a kingdom of light and love and life. He is the one that gave you every spiritual blessing and by his divine power has equipped you with everything you need for life and godliness. So you can point to a point in your life, a time in your life when Jesus disrupted you completely and beautifully. And you also know that as you continue to walk with him uh, on this faith journey, that he has promised to continue the work that he began in you when he made you a new creature in him, and that he is leading you to become more like him as you and I respond in loving obedience. So why would I say... Jesus wants to disrupt your life, if he already has, and you know that he will. Because I think that's where our passage today goes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. I think it's a passage of disruption, and I, I take that from a key phrase that is used twice. I think there's a sandwich structure to this passage. I think there are two verses at the start that are like the one slice of bread with your favorite condiment on it, and those set the stage for walking in holiness. And there's a phrase that says, I know that you do. There's this note of grace. He acknowledges what they are doing. But he also says, I want to challenge you to excel still more. And then at the end of the passage, verses 9 through 12, he comes back to that. And he's actually going to give us great hope there. He's going to give us uh, resources to be able to experience the life of Jesus Christ as we walk in holiness. And so that's the other slice of bread with your favorite condiment on it. And then the, the middle, the meat, the cheese, the, the tomatoes, the veggies, the lettuce, that's verses three through eight. And, and he highlights a specific area of holiness that affects every one of us in the culture in which we live, and it mirrors the culture of Thessalonica, where these believers were living and following Jesus in the first century. He uses that same phrase at the end, excel still more. And here's why I think he does it. I, I think he does it not because he's trying to say, hey, try harder, work longer hours, do better. This is nothing about our own strength. I think that in the few short months that it has been since Paul was in Thessalonica, you remember how he's run out of town and went to Berea, run out of town there. Anyway, he's now in Corinth. 
He's had time to send Timothy back. And then he, Timothy has come back and given a report. I think that in that report, there were some words of complacency. That there was a lack of consistency in their following Jesus. That perhaps they were so excited that, that hell is canceled and heaven's guaranteed that they were just going to put it on coast. They're just going to go with the flow. Or perhaps more positively, because of all the emphasis on end times and the return of Jesus Christ, they had just quit their work. They had quit their relationships. They were just standing on the street corner waiting for Jesus to come back. Could be that as well. I think that's why Jesus wanted to disrupt their lives and say, I want you to excel still more. It's one of those awake, oh sleeper moments. And I think that's a word that we can use today. Is that fair? Is it true that we are thrilled that we possess every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ and that we have all kinds of power for life and godliness and, and that we just have incredible knowledge of God's word and we have incredible resources all over the internet and our home libraries and library at church and all that? But so often we just live life Monday to Friday in neutral, don't we? We live life as if we're just going to coast and then get another pep talk on Sunday or in our small group or in our Bible study. And so perhaps this is a message that will reach you as it has reached me that Jesus wants to disrupt our lives. And this is what I would say is the theme of verses 1 through 12 that Practically speaking, when the gospel takes root, holiness is the fruit. He starts there in verses 1 and 2. He brings an intense emphasis to an area of sexual immorality. And then verses 9 to 12, he gives us some resources on how to walk in holiness. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4 if you're not there yet. In verses 1 and 2, I think he's saying be decisive in choosing holiness. Be intentional. On a daily basis, not just the fact that you're a believer and you know that's what God does and you know that's what's right for a follower of Jesus, but be intentional, be decisive in following him. And so what Paul does here in, in verses 1 and 2, there's this note of grace where he expresses his love for them, and then there's a, a strong challenge as well. And, and this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, there's that note of grace, that you excel still more. I think he's saying, you know, this is true. You've heard what we instructed you with. Timothy reminded you. And you're give it an emphasis occasionally, but excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul is challenging them and us, speaking to us as well as them, to be decisive in choosing holiness. And, and I think it's important to note here that in this particular passage, just as really as he's done throughout the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, if you take the time to read it, he doesn't provide new information here. He goes back to say, hey, here's what 
we instructed you with. You remember, as you know, what we told you when we were there. And, and, and that's such an important point because he's not looking for new information. He's looking for transformation. And it's an important point for us uh, to take note of because I think the, the bottom line is that Paul is saying, do what you know. Don't get hungry for more information and more knowledge and all that. And it's very exciting to study God's word and learn more things. But at some point, you got to stop and start doing what you know. Start obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Respond to him in love. Serve others. So I think that's where Paul is going with this as he says that. And I think that he's saying walk in holiness. What had he instructed them in? Well, back in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, We have done all of this, giving you the gospel in our own lives as well. We have a dear love and a fond affection for you. And all of that is so that we can point you to walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his kingdom. And when we looked at that, we said, those are scales, Jesus on one side, us on the other. And so when we respond in loving obedience, we begin to look more like Jesus Christ. We begin to act more like Jesus Christ. Our attitudes reflect Christ. Our decisions are the decisions that he would make on this journey as he continually changes us from the inside out and begins to shape our character. And his ways become our ways. That's, that's so exciting. Well, Paul is saying, choose holiness, become more like Jesus, and holy living is the process there. We choose to respond in loving obedience, and the Holy Spirit works inside of us to transform us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. We won't be exactly like him until we see him face to face. And then we have the phrase, excel still more. Don't be complacent. And we need these words as well. Because as we look this summer, we face spiritual warfare in a world that is orchestrated by Satan, that is ruled by Satan, a world system, a culture, if you will, that is against Jesus Christ. And it's becoming much more apparent, right? I mean, you just look at any kind of headlines anymore or, or what the issues are around the country, and you realize, hey, you know, there's a lot more antagonism toward Jesus Christ that's becoming more blatant than there was maybe 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago, always there under the surface, but a little more blatant now. We need these words. And Jesus wants to disrupt our lives so that we don't become complacent, so that we don't just jump into the channel with all the fish and go with the flow. He wants us to swim upstream. He wants us to be countercultural. He wants us to follow him and not the ways of the world. I think 1 John 2, 15 to 17 is a, a great illustration of this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. It is so easy to become stained by the world because we're just immersed in it all the time. So Paul says, I want you to excel still more. I want you to walk in holiness as we instructed you. Be decisive in choosing holiness. 
That's the challenge in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 8, he's going to kind of ramp it up a little bit. He's so me talking about this overriding uh, idea of walking in holiness. But now he's going to just pick out one particular subject. He doesn't pick out gossip or gluttony. He chooses sexual immorality. And so he's going to hit the believers in Thessalonica, he's going to hit us hard. He's going to say, be passionate about sexual purity. Be passionate about sexual purity. We live in a sex-saturated culture that is alluring. I'm not sure that it has quite reached the level of blatancy that was in Thessalonica. Remember how we talked about the, the religious cults there, the sexual cults, the sexual practices and temples that were just out there and available to everybody. And the overriding uh, mentality of the culture was take advantage of all that is offered here. So we have the same offerings, right? Even in your phones, in your laptops, your computer, on the internet, all kinds of apps that make that available. We don't always see it walking down the street as they did in Thessalonica. And that is the context which these followers of Jesus Christ came out of. That's where they had worshipped. That's where they had played. That's all they knew before they knew Jesus Christ. So it applies to their culture. It applies to our culture. I was on vacation at home last couple of weeks. And um, one of the things I did was uh, we have an older home, about 60 years old. And uh, Schneiders have a lot of hair. And, uh, and so it's common for us to have to take the drain off the shower or the bathtub and, and put the zip it down there and uh, pull out the hair. And, uh, and then about once a year, Perry has to come over because of the, the old design on our um, pipes is such that he has to kind of run the snake through the whole house and, and clear things out. And he actually did that. And then we started having problems with the shower and it started uh, backing up a little bit. And so uh, I got down, pulled out the drain, and sure enough, just a, a cluster of hair. Is this gross or what? And um, so I just reached down and pulled it up. I didn't even need to zip it. It was right there. And, and then I went to work with the zip it, the long plastic thing with the barbs on it. You know, you stick it down there and you pull it up. And uh, so in the past, that required like three or four placements plunging down into the drain pipe and uh, just pulling up more hair and scum and, and, and uh, dark, yucky, slimy stuff. And uh, you pull it up and you would clean off the, um, you would clean off the zip it and put it in the trash, and then run it down again. It would take three or four times, and that was it. Well, this time, if you can believe this, there was no hair. And, and I don't know. I don't know anything about this. So go ask Perry if, if you want an explanation of why it's like this, okay? But I put the zip it down there, and it comes up with all this scum. And, and I do it three or four times, and I counted. I stopped counting it at 25 times full of scum, Every, just dark, and, and the yellow color was gone because it was just covered with scum. Now, here's why I would spend time on a story like that. 
Stay with me. <laughs> because I think that's what you and I look like living in a sex-saturated culture. And when I say Jesus wants to disrupt our lives, I think he wants us to recognize and acknowledge and be fully aware, not uh, pleasantly enjoying the fact that when we are assaulted by everything we stream and everything we look at on some of these apps, we're just getting covered with slimy scum. Our souls, our hearts, our minds. And we've got to start there if we're going to be serious about the command that Paul is going to lay down for us. We've got to have a recognition that this is where we live. And this is what we experience. And sometimes out of curiosity or lust or passion, we dive in. And we pay a price. Paul gets to that later as well. So this is what he says in verse 3. Here's the command. It's a definitive statement. It's given first in the positive and then in the negative. He says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's the positive statement. The word sanctification here is literally the word holiness. Sometimes it's used as the word consecration. So you can see that. It's more of a verb than a noun. But this word is holiness here. So he's saying this is the will of God. And, and so for all those people that walk around with this great mystery, what is the will of God? I don't know what the will of God is. And, of course, they're usually talking about what's the next job or where do I move. But we can be extremely clear on this. Here's the will of God. Your holiness. And then he's just going to pick one thing out that he wants us to work on. And he says... In the negative, abstain from sexual immorality. He puts it positive. He says, I want you to pursue with a passion, holiness. When we pursue holiness with a passion and purity, sexual purity, then holiness begins to harness the sexual impurity, the desires, the fleshly desires that arise. And so Paul says it very positively first. He wants to get that hook in us. Why would he need to say that? Well, again, because of the cultural climate that Satan has orchestrated, and it's not just for us. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you will see at least seven different ways that sex was distorted, sexuality, in horrible ways. In the first book of the Bible, Satan distorts and destroys God's gift to mankind. God has given gift, the gift of sexuality and sex to be used in a marriage between one man and one woman. And so Paul says, pursue that with passion. Pursue holiness with passion in the sexual realm. And then he says, abstain. Now, the word abstain here is not neutral. There's nothing neutral about it. This is not like when somebody doesn't vote because they don't have to, and, and they abstain from the vote. They don't say yay or nay. Paul and God wants us to vote here. He wants us to vote against sexual immorality. 
And so he says, abstain, quit sexual immorality, renounce it, stay away from it. It, it could not be clearer. It's a very strong command. And it's a hard command. In fact, I would say God's will is very clear, but it's hard. Is that fair? Because we are so enculturated with sex and sexuality about us and sensuality. It even begins, becomes hard to distinguish at times. That shows how much, how many layers of scum are on us and have taken over. What is sexual immorality? I, I would suggest uh, three things for you, and, and, and I realize we have all ages here, so I'll be just a little more broad, but certainly there are actions, and there are actions of uh, sexuality that are outside the realm of marriage. There is premarital sex, and there is extramarital sex, adultery. There is sex between members of the same gender. These are actions. There are also uh, lust and fleshly desires. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that to look upon a woman with lust in your heart is the same as having adultery with her. That really tightens the restrictions on sexual purity because that is so common for any of us, right? We don't even have to be looking for it. You don't have to go on the internet to just be walking down the street and, and somebody is over there that catches your eye. And Jesus says, if you're going to take a second look and you're going to lust, whether you're a man or a woman, this is not just about men, then you have committed sexual immorality if you want to take it that far. I would say the third thing is attitudes. And, and, and I'm throwing this in just because we are being a little bit more vague, but also just to show you how serious God is and how he treats it in different places. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, talks about our attitudes, our casual conversations, and he says this, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. That kind of takes your breath away. I mean, it does for me. I mean, come on. How easy is it to share some innuendos or to be clever and witty about sexual things? It certainly reveals how widespread our interest is in sexual things because most people go along with it and, and think it's clever and witty and funny. But God has restricted us in this area. And he has said, I want you to abstain from sexual immorality. He makes it very clear. Choose sexual purity, and that simply means living by God's design when it comes to sexuality. Be thankful. Be thankful for what God has created. Be thankful for his gift. Have a passion for purity. Following this command, Paul gives two further explanations of it in the next three verses. 
In verses 4 and 5, he essentially says, be a person of honor. Be a man of honor. Be a woman of honor. People of honor hold themselves to higher standards. People of honor choose to do the right thing. And so that's what Paul is going to say here in verses 4 and 5. He says, following the command in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion. Like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, to a people who did not know God, the living God, and Jesus Christ. That was all they knew, was this culture of sexuality. And that may be your past before Christ. It may be your past with Christ. It may be your present. And Paul is saying, be a person of honor. Choose high standards. Do what is right. And what I like about this, as he tells us to have self-control, to, to gain mastery over ourselves, to know our strengths, to know our weaknesses, whether it's some place that we go to in this area or some person that we talk to, whatever it is, he's saying, know your strengths and weaknesses, know who you are in Christ. And, and what I see here is a message of hope. A message of hope. He would not give us these commands that we would not follow our lustful, fleshly desires. He would not say to us, be a person of honor, unless it was possible. Uh, unless God was willing to work in us and make that possible in our lives. Because he never says, go out and do this in your own power. Go out and be somebody you can't be on your own. No, he's saying, choose this. And the hope is that it's possible because of the Holy Spirit in you. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 6, we have a further explanation, a further reasoning for this command, instructions that God gives to protect and to provide for us. And this is what he says in the first part of verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Do not defraud, do not cheat, don't sin against God by breaking his command, by giving in to sexual immorality, sexual impurity, by following your fleshly desires. But don't defraud anyone else. In other words, treat others with honor. Be a person of honor and treat others with honor. Seek their best. Be a giver, not a taker. So he's essentially saying, don't promise love and practice lust. Don't promise to seek their best and Take what you want. No, seek a healthy relationship. Don't cheat them through your relationship. Don't cheat them in their relationship with God. Don't cheat them for their future. 
God's word tells us, abstain from sexual immorality. Don't sin against God and don't defraud your brother or sister in this matter. And then having given those further clarifications, Paul now provides three incentives, three motivations, if you will, as we look forward, because he's going to give some reasons why God does this. And he says this in verse six, the second half, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, somebody just woke up and thought I was talking about a movie, the Avengers. The Lord is the avenger. And so the first incentive is to realize that the Lord wants purity. And there are reasons why that he will follow up with. What is one of the reasons? One of the ways that sexual sin is avenged. Well, there are natural consequences to sexual sin. Far too numerous to mention. Broken relationships, depression, scars, guilt, shame, hurt, pain. We can just go on and on uh, about the natural consequences. And so looking back at the command and thinking about this, we would say, well, Lord, thank you. You're not some cosmic killjoy trying to take away all my fun. You are the living God who wants to protect me from harm. You want what is best for me. Because if not, we face all kinds of consequences uh, along the way that lead to pain and suffering. The Lord can and will we'll deal with all of that when we come to him. And that's what I think Paul comes back to at the end, but we'll get there. The second way that I think it is avenged is in discipline of the Lord. If we just pursue this path of outright rebellion, there will be discipline of the Lord. He loves us too much. He has a jealous spirit. He wants us to long for him and not make an idol out of sexuality or porn or anything else that is sexually immoral. So he will discipline us and it can be harmful and hurtful because he wants to draw us back to ourselves, to him. He wants to break us of ourselves so that we know what life is through him and experience it. And then finally, the Lord desires purity when we choose sexual impurity. I think at the judgment seat of Christ, there can be loss of reward for engaging in sexual immorality. That is one more way that sexual impurity, sexual immorality, pursuing fleshly desires is avenged by the Lord. There's a phrase that I've been mulling over for a couple of months now, talking over with friends. Uh, Dallas Willard used it in one of his um, teaching sessions. And as he's setting a basis for truth, he says, truth is unforgiving. Truth is unforgiving. Truth is what happens when you run into reality. 
Norm Geisler always used to define truth as that which corresponds to reality. So an example would be, you can believe all you want, you can have all kinds of emotions about it as well, that you've got a full gas tank. But if that's empty, you're not going anywhere. You've run into reality. And so when Paul pens what God wants him to about sexual immorality and abstaining from it, then he is saying, here's God's truth. And it's for your best. He wants you to enjoy life to the fullest and, and not go through all these other things. He doesn't want you to run into reality and be struck with it. He wants to provide a way out for you. The second incentive has to do with choosing abundant life. And this is what he says in verse 7. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, there's that word holiness. So when we follow God's guidelines for sexual purity, we are following his calling for life. So again, you can know that you're in the will of God. You can know that you're following his calling in your life when you and I pursue sexual purity, when we choose to obey God. We choose life versus death. It was James who said that lust gives way to sin and sin gives way to destruction or death. So when we choose sexual purity, we're choosing life. I think we have the difference in life and death in John 10, 10. The first half is the thief, Satan himself, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's true in sexual immorality. But the second half is life. Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Have it to the fullest. My life, eternal life in you, that you live by faith. That's where Jesus calls us to holiness, not impurity. There's a well-known quote that uh, preachers like to try it out at like, times like this. And I've seen it so many places, I don't even know who originally said it, but I'm going to put it on the screen for you, that sin will take you further than you intended to play. And it will keep you longer than you intended to stay, and it will cost more than you are willing to pay. I think that's why we want to follow God's calling. Why we want to choose purity and not wrestle with impurity and sexual immorality in our lives. When God says pursue holiness with a passion for purity, he's looking out for our good. The third incentive reminds us of the role of the Holy Spirit. And if nothing else has given you hope yet, this will. This is what he says in verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if you don't like these words and, and you don't want to obey them and you're just not in that season of life right now, you're not saying, I don't like what Paul said. You're not saying, I don't like what Dave said. You're saying, I don't like what God is saying. He just wants to be really clear. I mean, could he help us out anymore <laughs> in being clear? And, and so he says, you're rejecting the God who gave you these words and who has given you this incredible resource, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. And that's a Holy Spirit. That is a member of the Trinity. He is at work in you 
to make you more like Jesus Christ. He is at work in you to empower you, to strengthen you. And so when we say that God will not give us a command that we cannot keep on our own, he won't leave us out there. He gives us the ability, the power, the strength, the sustenance through the Holy Spirit. We can turn to him and rely upon him, and we don't want to ignore him as a resource. And, and so again, going back to disrupting our lives, so many of us coast through the week and don't even think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't even depend upon the Lord for our next thought or action or attitude or broken relationship. Take advantage of the resource of the Holy Spirit. God's word is clear. Don't pursue sexual immorality. Pursue sexual purity with a passion. And when you do, you're choosing life, the life that God offers, the life that protects and provides for you and for me. And now in verses 9 to 12, he shows how we can choose that life. Verses 9 to 12, be overwhelmed by the love of God. Be overwhelmed with the love of God. I think the key that Paul is saying here is to be reminded of God's love for you. And certainly compelled by the love of Christ, we want to serve him and love him. But he also wants us to be so overwhelmed that we find healing, that we find sustenance, that we find forgiveness, that we can confess our sins, that we can take our scars to him. And so listen what he does here. In verses 9 and 10, he's going to point us to the love of God through community. And that's another incredible resource that we have when it comes to sexual immorality. And that is to gather with those who are like-minded, who are pursuing the holiness of God with passion. Even if it's just one other person, two other people, a small group of people willing to say, hey, I, I, I need help in this area. I need encouragement I need somebody to cheer me on. I need somebody to warn me. I need somebody to rebuke me. I need somebody to point out a blind spot. Hey, you're playing with fire there. And so here's what he says. He says, now as to the love of the brethren, verses 9 and 10, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. As we look at this section of verses 9 through 12, I kept my Bible student mentality, just like you do when you go to God's Word. But I took my scholar hat off and I put on my pastoral hat. And here's why I say that, because when you look at verses 9 through 12, a lot of your scholars, a lot of your commentators are just going to say, well, these are just more practical exhortations, practically speaking, right? For living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you can make that point. You can even point to other cross-references of Paul. I am convinced because of what I call that sandwich structure, because it's linked by excelling still more, because the whole emphasis is on holiness with an intensity about sexual immorality, that he doesn't leave us and just go on to the next few things and say, okay, love each other in the body and uh, do this, uh, you know, be busy, don't, don't quit your jobs and all that. I literally think that it goes a little bit deeper than that. And so that's where I'm going to take the interpretation here. That verses 9 and 10, he's talking about the community. He says, you guys love one another. In chapter 1, we saw how beautiful that love was for one another. There was a commitment that was sacrificial. 
and literally sought the best of others, even at a cost to the people around them. And, and it was so powerful and so strong that it reached out from whatever small group had grown in, in those first three or four or five weeks that Paul was there over the last five, six months to affect the whole state of Macedonia, this whole region. And so there is a love and there must be something that came back in Timothy's report because of the way Paul words it now as to the love of the brethren. And I think he's saying, okay, your love is good. I want you to excel still more in that. And I want you to use it in this area of sexual immorality. I want you to find a, a brother or sister in Christ that you can deal with, same gender, that you can talk to about this openly. I want you to be encouraged and strengthened. And I want you to show that kind of love for one another, the love that you were taught by God. Very interesting there. When he talks about the brotherly affection, he uses the Greek word phileo. You're familiar with that, brotherly love. That love which is loyal and comfortable. But when he talks about the love of God, which you've been taught, he, taught, he uses agape, that, that sacrificial, costly, seeking the best of another. And so how have they been taught the love of God? Well, the same way we have. We were taught by God the Father who loved us so much that he sent the Son to die for our sins. And we say we love because he first loved us. We think of the Son who demonstrated his own love toward us in dying on the cross for our sins and then gave us a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Let that be your witness to the world. Be that tight with one another. And that covers a lot more than, than just casseroles when somebody's in the hospital. It goes deep into heart issues. And then the Spirit. We've learned from the Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. We read in Romans 5. And so we've been taught the love of God just like they had. And so we want to be a people that embrace the love of God. And all you have to do, if, you, if that's, you know, if that just sounds boring or it just sounds like, ah, it's kind of dry and, and I've, it's been so long since I've been there, just think of the cross. Just go back to the cross. Think about everything that Christ did for you. Think about where you would be if you were still spiritually dead in your sin. Go to the cross. We have been taught the love of God. And when we embrace one another in community, we have an incredible resource to help us deal with sexual temptation. The second thing Paul does in verse 11 is show us how to experience this love. And when we are loved by Jesus and we acknowledge that and we realize that and we recognize that and we live out of that, then we are freed up from so many things, from past mistakes and foolish choices, from scars, from guilt and shame. He is the one who forgives us when we go to him and confess our sin. He is the one who heals our hearts in these areas that are so hard to deal with. He is the one who has given us the body of Christ to love on us. And so we must experience the love of Christ when it comes to facing temptation. Because if we don't, we will hide in shame we will cower in fear and we'll be immersed in guilt. But his love brings forgiveness and healing. His, his grace contains a sufficiency 
that sustains us, that empowers us to move forward. And so this is what he says in, in verse 11. He says this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. And this is what I think he's saying, to make it your ambition He's already covered what an ambition is back in chapter 2. It's not to bring glory to me or glory to you. It's to bring glory to God. So we're, we have this ambition to please God. We're going to walk in holiness, right? Now, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. In other words, don't lead a frantic life. Don't worry yourself to death. How am I going to get out of this sexual temptation and sexual immorality? No, go to the Lord. I think he's saying here, lead a quiet life through your spiritual disciplines. That's what spiritual disciplines do for us. They order our life. They calm our hearts. They clear our minds because we're being exposed to God's word, which is an eternal power that transforms and guides and sanctifies and reveals the intentions of our hearts. When we spend time in prayer, we're communing with the living God of the universe, with our Savior who died on the cross for our sins. Practice spiritual disciplines. And I would say, man, the younger you are, the better it is. Start that trajectory right now. Start down that path of making yourself available to God. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're making God's grace available to you. You open God's word and you're letting him pour his grace into your heart. You spend time in prayer. You're allowing him to move your heart through the Holy Spirit. And you set that path, you set that habit, you set that trajectory now and it will carry you through all of life, through all kinds of situations, but especially one as intense as sexual immorality. Do that under the guidance of your parents and the encouragement of your student sponsors if, if, if you're a teenager. But it applies to any one of us, regardless of where you're at on this spectrum of sexual immorality. This is where we go. We must go to God. Live a quiet life. Have that time alone in personal devotion with Jesus so that he can bring healing, so that he can clear your mind, so that you can experience the power of his presence. He knows far more of what you need than you do. The second thing he says here is attend to your own business. Certainly that phrase rules out gossip and judgment and meddling and trying to fix others' lives. I think it refers here to keeping short accounts with your sin. Attend to your business. You've sinned, you've broken, you have sinned in sexual immorality, then confess it. Go to God for his forgiveness and for his healing. Let his grace bring you the forgiveness that gets rid of guilt and shame. Attend to your own business. And the third one, work with your own hands. I believe Paul is saying serve here. How you keep from being idle and giving way to the sexual temptations that arise because you're serving others. That focuses you on others. You're reaching beyond yourself. You are pleasing God by using your stewardship of time and talent and treasure to now lift up others to further them, to point them to Jesus Christ. 
serve. So I think the three things here are to live a life of spiritual disciplines and allow the sufficiency of Jesus' grace to heal every wound and hurt. To come to a place of, of sacred humility because of brokenness over mistakes and choices and receive his healing. And then in a positive way, just going forward in his strength and in enjoying his life and getting to know him better. Attending to your own business, confessing sin and, and working with your hands, serving others. Make it your ambition, he says. Ambitions lead to lifestyles and lifestyles lead to reputations. And that's where he goes in verse 12 so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. More than once, he has said it more blatantly in the book, the letter to Thessalonica, your reputation precedes you. You are known in the region for your love, for the power of the gospel. And here, be known for those who walk in holiness. Be known for those who are different than the culture. Be known for following Jesus Christ. God's word is clear when it comes to sexual immorality that we must walk away from it. It can be hard. And I've pointed out the resources that he gives and the Holy Spirit, the truth of his word, the community of believers. And these are all great. I also don't want to leave this message without saying I know that there are people quite often that are mired much more deeply and would like professional help or would like for someone to come alongside of us. And so I want to offer our staff, our elder board. We also have John Vanderkay, who has uh, really done some great things in, in working with people in porn and even spouses of people in porn. And so there are a lot of resources out there. Please do not let Satan isolate you. Please do not go it alone. We want to embrace the community of believers in appropriate ways but we want to make sure that we use every resource and that we don't leave anybody behind in this uh, horrible area that can derail lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when your gospel takes root, that holiness is the fruit, that you, you change lives, that you bring healing to hurts, and that you bring a safety, and you give us hope going forward because of who you are and what you offer in our lives. And I thank you for packing all of that into this passage that we might better know you and become more like you and experience your grace. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.
Listen to the words from Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We live in a world full of heavy burdens. Um, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say um, coming to Jesus always, always results in joy. So we're going to end on, on that note. <laughs> Wash my sin away, oh, happy 
You can go home now.